encourage you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word and turn with me to our passage for this morning, which is Nehemiah chapter 4, and we look at verses 15 through 23. So Nehemiah 4, 15 through 23. And as you turn there, let me, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage, but we're also going to back up a little bit further into chapter 4, look at some verses we looked at last week. Because we're continuing to look at this opposition that has come up against the rebuilding of the wall, against Nehemiah, and against God's people. And what we looked at last week is how this opposition was from the outside. The enemies of God were opposed to us. But what we saw towards the end of our reading last week and continuing into our reading this week, is not only was the opposition from outside, but it was from inside as well. Not only were the the enemies of God who were opposing Nehemiah in this work, now the people of God began to oppose Nehemiah in this work as well. So we're going to look at that and see how Nehemiah, through God's guidance and through his faith in God and prayerfulness, dealt with this situation. And we'll see it in verses 15 through 23. So let me pray for us and we will continue to come together before God's word. So let's pray together. Lord our God, it is a beautiful day. We come in this morning, we saw the, the changing of the leaves, the beautiful color, the beautiful sky. And we were reminded that you are the creator God who has given us such beauty. But even more so, you've given us the beauty of worship and the beauty of your word. And in this beauty of word, we are shown the beauty of Jesus Christ. The beauty of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirits. So may you give us ears to hear this morning, minds to understand, and hearts to live out the beauty of your truth. Bless us in this way, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he, while, he, while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are sp- separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labor at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God... Stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. 
Have you ever invested yourself in something? A ministry? A project? A job? Maybe a person? And you reach a point where you stop, you look around, and you survey what's been accomplished so far, and you find yourself wondering, is it worth it? What good have I done? Really, what good have I accomplished? With all the pros and cons, what have I really accomplished with this ministry, with this project, this job, with this person? Have I done any good at all? And you start to take into account the time you're spent on this. The blood, the sweat, the tears, the sleepless nights, the worry. All that you have done to invest in this, you survey it all and you're left wondering, is it worth it? Do I keep on? Is there any good left to be done? You've given so much of yourself to it. And you're left wondering, is there anything else for me left to give? Is there the worth the investments giving any more of myself to this ministry, to this project, to this job, to this person? And I think if we were standing with Nehemiah in this passage at the wall, I think we would find that's what he's going through. He has faced various oppositions to this job, faced various oppositions to this ministry. He's only trying to do a good thing. He's getting beat up about it. And I think we find Nehemiah here looking around and he's thinking to himself, is it worth it anymore? Now we saw the opposition last week had come from known enemies of the Israelites and we can understand that. They're enemies. They don't want to see the Israelites do anything good. They don't want to see them succeed. They don't want to see them prosper. We understand that opposition we find the opposition isn't just outside the walls, it's now coming from within it. God's own people are opposing the work of God. And that's baffling. It's baffling to Nehemiah. And we can easily imagine maybe his shoulders slump and he looks to the grounds and he says, is it worth it anymore? As we saw in our previous passage, the enemies of God, Zimbalat, Tobiah, and their allies are opposed to the rebuilding and restoration of the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. Again, this isn't surprising. They're enemies of God's people. As we saw last week, though, is ultimately Satan who is behind their opposition. Now, this doesn't mean that these people are demonically possessed or even demonically oppressed. What it means is the very simple equation of scripture. Either you follow after God, if you don't follow after God, then you're going to follow after Satan. These men, these people, these allies, this army of Samaria are not following after God. Therefore, they are enemies of God and they are following after Satan. And Satan is leading them and opposing God's people and the work of God. We're reminded what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Whoever is not with me is against me. You know, we live in a day of uh, relativism. Right? Everybody makes up their own truth. And in relativism, we like a lot of gray area. Because when we hang out in the gray area, then anything can be true that we want it to be true. And that's how churches die. 
And that's how denominations go from being faithful to denominations to being unfaithful to denominations. There's only two paths in life. Either we're with God or we're against Him. And when he says we're against Him, it means that we are following then after our father, Satan. So that's the two choices we have in life. Either we follow after our father, God, or we follow after the father, Satan. And that's where we find these men, Sambalat, Tobiah, and their allies. They're following after Satan. Now this doesn't mean they're Satanists. They're not drawing, they're not drawing pentagrams all over the place and sacrificing goats and listening to, to Slayer, Megadeth, and Metallica. But they're not following after God. Which means they are following after Satan. And Satan's the one behind their actions. Now these men, this army, don't want the wall to be rebuilt because they don't want the Israelites back in the area. For them, it's really just a political and territorial concern for them. They don't want other group of people they have to contend with. They, they don't want to deal with the politics. They're, they're being territorial. There may be some religion involved, but mainly it's a political and territorial concern for them. However, that's the veneer. That's the curtain. When we pull the curtain back, we find that it's Satan who's behind their opposition. And why is Satan opposed to this? Because he doesn't want the wall, he doesn't want the wall to be rebuilt because he knew that when it was finished, God's people would gather out of exile and they would gather together to worship. And that's exactly what Satan doesn't want. He could care less about the marketplace in Jerusalem. He could care less about the fountains. He could care less about anything else. What he does not want is the temple. And he does not want the city to be safe enough for the people to gather back there and go to the temple because when they do that, then they are a worshiping people. And Satan does not want God's people gathered together to worship. He wants malnourished Christians. If he has to, con- if he has to contend, if he has to say, okay, you can have the faith, if you can be a Christian, then you can be rest assured that he wants you to be a malnourished Christian. If he can't stop you from being a Christian, then he's going to do everything he can in his power to make sure that you are malnourished. We remember Paul advising the church that they need to grow from milk to meat. And we we know that in, in that human ecology, the human physiology, when you have a baby, you want the baby to move from, from milk to, to, to soft food, right? Those awful smelling Gerber little baby foods. And then to move up from that to, to, to Cheetos. No, not Cheetos, Cheerios. In my house, it was Cheetos. But for most families, it's Cheerios. Hence why I have a stomach. But you want to move up and, and, and feed more and more. And that's the Christian life. Baby Christians start on milk. But they're to grow. And grow. They're to be nourished more and more. And Satan doesn't want to be nourished. He wants to stay immature, lacking in faith and obedience. He wants malnourished Christians. And the best way he can accomplish this is to keep us away from worship. So we said last week, you can be well assured, every Lord's Day morning, Satan has one goal for you, and it's to keep you from coming here. He has one goal for every Christian every Sunday morning, and that's to keep their rear ends away from the pews at church. Why? Because this is a feast. 
This is a spiritual feast. This is where God feeds his people. We gather together so we can feast upon his word to sing it, to pray it, to hear it, to, 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 to hear explain it, to understand it. To feast upon the sacraments of, 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 of baptism and the Lord's Supper. To feast upon corporate prayer. To, to feast upon fellowship with each other. And the, the more he can keep us away from this, then the more spiritually malnourished we will be. Because this is where God grows us, where he matures us, where he strengthens us. We all remember those commercials on, on TV where they showed the, the starving children in Africa, right? And there's, their ribs are sticking out and there's, and there's flies buzzing around their head and all they can do is sit there, right? Because if you're malnourished, what can you do? You can do nothing. So what do you think a spiritually malnourished Christian can do for God and for his glory? They can do nothing. We look at those little children on those commercials. We can count all the bones in our torso. And we're too weak to swap the flies away from our face. All we can do is lay on a cot and exist. That is why Satan opposes worship. And make no mistake about it. Each Sunday when we choose to not worship, Satan wins. And I know we don't always like to hear it in such absolute terms, but that's the absolute terms of Scripture. Every Sunday when we make the choice to do something else besides worship, then Satan has won. You become a notch of victory for Satan. Now, as we said, we, we understand there are occasions when we are sick. Some of us have jobs that require us to work on the Lord's Day. We may be providentially hindered, but that's not all of us, is it? This is where we need to be. Because when we are away from this, Satan wins. And we begin down the path of spiritual malnourishment. And that's the background of the opposition of these evil people. Even though on the outside for them, it is just a political and territorial concern. Ultimately, it is Satan at work to keep God's people from gathering for worship of the one true God. As we said, we see that opposition from without, but we also see it from within. We will take your Bibles. Let's look back at chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. In Judah, it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, Till we not know, or, or sorry, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So word has gotten to some word has gotten back to the city to, to God's people about what Sambalat and Tobiah and others have said, and they're now scared. And so they go run to, to Nehemiah and they're saying, Nehemiah, we've got to stop this. 
We, we can't keep on doing this. Look at those big bad guys out there. They're going to come and they're going to destroy us. Nehemiah, we have to stop this. They've gotten the text. They've gotten the word. This is what they're saying. And they're running scared. God's people. And God's city. Doing God's work. And they're scared of man. We can almost hear how frustrated, aggravated Nehemiah was when he says that the Jews who were local came from all directions and, and said to him ten times, ten times. And this doesn't mean Nehemiah is sitting there going, okay, that's once, twice, three times. He didn't count up ten. It's like how we, you know, we say, I have told you a thousand times to wash the dishes or whatever it is. Does that mean that time you said it was literally the thousandth time? No, it means you've said to you're blue in your face. And do we literally get blue in our face? But we see what we mean. The point is, the people are now scared. And they're nagging Nehemiah to stop the work so the bad guys will leave them alone. If they were Presbyterians, they called a meeting. And they said, Nehemiah, you've got to listen to us. We have to stop. We, we can find another solution. But I understand you believe God told you to do this. But maybe you were wrong. Maybe you misheard God. We've, we've got to find somewhere else to do. Some other, we can't, we've got to stop this. We've got to find something else to do. We don't want to make these people mad. They've forgotten the power of God in prayer. They knew the story of how Nehemiah ended up there, of how he prayed. When Nehemiah got there, they prayed with Nehemiah and they prayed for Nehemiah. They seen God answer these prayers. Nehemiah is an answered prayer. Now, when they begin to face opposition, they forget the power of God in prayer and they get scared. And so they see Nehemiah pray. And so some of them sheepishly join in with Nehemiah to pray, but probably pray with one eye open, right? Keep left eye closed, right eye open, so that way if the enemy comes, they'll see them. So even though they have seemed to have forgotten the power of God in prayer, they still join in pray. And that brings us to our passage, verse 15. Nehemiah says, When our enemies heard it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all return to the wall, each to his work. I think this is Nehemiah's kind of subtle way of saying, huh, God heard our prayers. God, God answered our prayers. Hey guys, remember when you came running scared to me about all those big bad guys and we prayed? Well, what happened? God frustrated their work. God frustrated their plan. We prayed, God heard, God answered. Kind of almost that leaderly, passive-aggressive way of saying, I told you so. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. The sovereign God still answers prayers. They pray for safety from the enemy, and guess what? God answered their prayers. And ultimately, Satan is the one who's been frustrated. 
It's a reminder to us that the sovereign God still answers prayers. That's why we have weekly prayer meetings. It's not just to get together to eat, although that is a, a very much a bonus. But we come together to pray because we trust that God is sovereign and he still hears and answers prayers. And think about all the prayers he has answered from our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Bob Medina's grandson, Baxter, being healed of that mass on, on the stem of his brain. Praying for my pastor friend, Mike Dixon, who was, who was battling, in the hospital battling COVID, was given a 5% chance of survival, is now home and recovering. Praying for Ben Cathcart. And the Lord bringing her along in health. Whitman Spires recovering from limes. God's grace and peace to be on those who are grieving. The list goes on and on and on. But we get to see that the sovereign God still answers prayers. God is still frustrating the plans of Satan. He's still healing people. He's still furthering his kingdom work. And he is doing it through prayers. He's doing it through that group of 15 to 20 who gather on Wednesday evenings down the fellowship hall to pray. He's doing it through the Sunday morning congregational prayers. The sovereign God is still answering prayers. He has answered their prayers. These people are no longer an active threat, but they're still a lingering threat. And it's interesting to note how Nehemiah begins to deal with it. We've already read the passage, so we won't read it again. Nehemiah basically, or essentially, takes what had been a a strictly construction site and makes it into a hybrid construction military site. After their prayer meeting, he says, we're going to continue to work but we're going to do something a little bit different. So if we could time travel, if we could have the, the Bill and Ted uh, payphone booth here, we could get into it and we could go back in time, or we could go back to this time, we would see something rather unusual to us. We would see that half the people are building the wall, are reconstructing it. We would find that the other half of the people are standing there with swords and clubs and stones protecting the people and guarding the wall. And if we look closer at those who are on the wall working, we will find they are only working with one hand because their other hand is on the sword that's strapped to their side. So Nehemiah, in his godly and prayerful wisdom, tells them, keep a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. He has put them in a constant state of readiness. He's reminding them, and we are reminded, that the sovereignty of God is not to be an excuse for negligence and dereliction of duty whenever the kingdom work is. William Temple says it this way, whereas we think our real work is our, let me say it again, whereas we think our real work is our activity to which prayer is an adjunct, our praying is the real work. And our activity is the index of how we have prayed. Another way of saying it is we pray and then we work as if we had prayed. We often bemoan prayer because what is prayer? It's not activity. 
And we find with the story of Nehemiah, it is the main activity, it is the first activity, it is the primary activity, and everything else flows from that. We pray, and then we work as if we had prayed. Saying has become popular in our Christian circles nowadays is let go and let God. And it has its place. But I often see it being construed as advocating that there's nothing for the Christian to do, God will do it all. There's nothing for you to do, God will do it all, so let go and let God. Is that what Nehemiah says here? Says to the people, I, I know those people are gathered up against us. And I know they want to frustrate our work and we know Satan's behind it and we pray. So we're just going to let go and let God. It would sound holy, right? Sound sanctimonious. But no, Nehemiah says, we know the danger out there. We know the threat out there. We have prayed to God about it. So now we work as if we had prayed. We pray and trust God. Now get your swords and strap them to your sides. We pray, and then we work as if we had prayed. And we do that because, again, we understand that behind at least some significant portion of opposition, there is Satan. And Peter tells us he is prowling around like a hungry lion, wanting to devour us. So what did Paul tell the Ephesian Christians to do then? To put on the whole armor of God. Why? So we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We pray. And then we put on the armor of God. We don't let go and let God. Whatever mystically that may mean to us. We pray. We pray our hearts out. We wear out the knees of our pants. And then we get up. And we work as if we had prayed by first putting on the whole armor of God. The armor that includes the shield of faith that quenches the fiery darts that come our way. The shield that also has the sword of of the spirit of scripture, the weapon of all prayer. This is our duty and discipline as Christians. We pray and then we work as if we had prayed by starting with putting on the whole armor of God. This past Thursday was Veterans Day. We're thankful for our veterans here, uh, those men and women who answer the call to duty and discipline. But we have the same call as Christians. Our duty and our discipline begins with prayer, and then we work. We work as if we had prayed. We, go, we put on the armor of God, and we go about his work. And we do that with the level of assurance that Nehemiah gives his people at the end of verse 20, our God will fight for us. As I mentioned in the introductory sermon to this, to this book, to this study, this Nehemiah was the first book of the Bible I really seriously studied. It was in college. And I remember it was a Monday evening I went through how we would study and then get back in time to watch WCW Wrestling. And I can remember one evening sitting there on the couch with my friend Trey Benfield, who many of y'all have met. His family comes here at Easter. And he was leading the Bible study. And I remember being brought to tears by this passage. Because Trey did such a good job of bringing out that aspect of God as the warrior God. Because I was raised in a tradition where Jesus was pretty much a hippie. 
peace, love, joy, and happiness is Jesus, right? He's like the, the hippie relative who shows up at Thanksgiving with the tofu turkey and organic brownies that you would even feed your dog and they get a beat up rusted VW bus preaching peace, love, and happiness, right? And many of us probably grew up in a house or saw the picture of Jesus where he looked like a well-washed hippie, right? Nice flowing brown locks, a nicely trimmed beard, a good-looking California hippie boy he was. And then we come to a passage like this, and God is no hippie. He's not putting a daisy in a rifle barrel. No, he's a warrior. He's the God who fights for us. And what Nehemiah called the people to do is what God does for us. And that picture of God is a very simple picture. Like he's wearing armor. And with one arm, he's gathered around us, gathering us to him. And the other arm, and the other arm with the hand, he holds a sword for which he defends us and pushes forth his kingdom work. You can imagine a Viking. You can imagine a knight in his armor. You can imagine the, the marching hordes and, and, and brave hearts, right? Because our God probably, as a warrior God, does wear a kilt and have bagpipes, right? Because he's, our God's a Scott-Irish Presbyterian God, of course. But it's a picture of a warrior God. He's the ultimate warrior, not the wrestler. But the ultimate warrior. There ain't any Navy SEAL, Green Beret, or Ranger out there. And he fights for us. He is defending us. He has put on armor to defend us. He has grabbed his sword to defend us. He is the warrior God for his people. That's as R.C. Sproul explains it this way. Our God is a warrior God. Specifically, the Lord is called a man of war. He is a warrior who fights for the good of his people. It is in his nature to wage war against those who will rise up against his name and against his children. We can rejoice in that our covenant-keeping God will never leave us or forsake us because his outstretched arm is always present to defeat the enemies of his kingdom. Satan and his minions fear the power of Christ that manifests itself among Christians through the Holy Spirit. Thus, we should not be surprised that the enemy will do everything in his power to silence the witness of the church. But Jesus fights for us. He wields the sword of the gospel to convert the nations, to turn foe into friend, to make the impotent right for the outpouring of his wrath. On God alone do we rely, not on our own might. The Puritan William Grinnell writes it this way. The strength of the general and other hosts lies in his troops. But in the army of saints, the strength of every saint, yea, of the whole host of saints, lies in the Lord of hosts. I think one of the most glorious pictures we have in scripture is this picture of God here as the warrior God. There's a PCA Presbytery called Warrior Presbytery, and I think that's a fantastic name for it. Because our God is a warrior God. Why do we pray? Because our God is fighting on our behalf and fights for our prayers to be answered. 
Why do we continue this work? Not because individually or together we are so mighty and great, but because our God is the warrior God who has his armored arm encircling us and his other hand with the sword out there defending us. That is the only way we can live the Christian life is understanding that our God is a warrior God. We'll end with this story. Many of us know the testimony of Jim Elliott's was a young man who discerned God's call for him to be a missionary to an unreached tribe in Ecuador. And this tribe was known to be violent and dangerous to outsiders. So Jim and a few other missionaries went to Ecuador, began to work with other tribes, but they built a camp that was near this tribe that they were trying to reach. And for months they took their plane and they flew over that tribe and they would drop presents and pamphlets. They were doing everything they could to make inroads with this tribe. One morning they got word that some people of the tribe were coming to them. Jim Elliott's out front. He goes to meet them. These representatives from the tribes are tender warriors. And they kill Jim. And they kill the rest of the missionaries. Now his wife, Jim's wife Elizabeth, comes back years later to that same tribe. And the warriors who had killed her husband were converted to Christianity. But I think one of the, more, one, one of the equally amazing parts of that story is that Jim and the other missionaries knew the danger of their call. They knew that they could be killed. And on the day that they heard that these warriors were coming to them, they gathered together and they sang this hymn. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts of triumph pealing, we rest on thee and in thy name we go. They knew their warrior God. They prayed, and they got to the work of the kingdom. May we know our warrior God, so that we too will pray and go about the work of his kingdom. Join me as we pray.